blessing it is that Christ indeed holds us fast. And amidst all of our confusion, amidst all of our, our stumbling, amidst all of our sin, Christ holds us fast. Our sermon text today is taken from Luke 22, verses 24 to 38, and it's a passage that speaks about confusion. Confusion abounding on a number of fronts. Confusion about the nature of greatness. Confusion about the nature of confidence. Confusion about the nature of readiness. And I, I really find that it's one of the great apologetics for the Christian faith and for the veracity, the, the believability, the truth of Scripture that, that the apostles are so, so poor in how they act sometimes. Because, because if they were just making these things up, if they were making these stories because they were trying to create some, some religion that would have people follow them, there's no way they would have portrayed themselves in such a dim light. They would have shown themselves to be far greater, far more steadfast in their faith, far more worthy of being leaders, it would seem. And yet we see in passages like this how quick they are to fail and how relatable they are to all of us. Let's take a look at Luke 22, verses 24 to 38. But before we do, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we, we come to this passage today in the Gospel according to Luke, and we thank you that you have given it to us. We thank you for the fact that your word is trustworthy and dependable, that it instructs us, that it guides us, that it, it shapes us and, and conforms us to the likeness of Christ Jesus, that it, it washes us, that we might be, be sanctified for you. But most of all, we thank you that your word points us to Jesus. May it do so this morning. And may he be glorified in this time. We ask it in his name. Amen. Follow along with me now as I read from Luke 22, verses 24 to 38. This is the inspired word of God. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors but not so with you rather let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves for who is the greater one who reclines at table or one who serves is it not the one who reclines at table but i am among you as the one who serves you are those who have stayed with me in my trials and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go 
with you both to prison and to death. But Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. Have you ever had a dispute of some kind? I'm sure you have. We've all been involved in different disputes. Disputes sometimes are, are, are very meaningful, very purposeful, very very important. Sometimes not so important. It, it can be something like a, a legal action or, or maybe, maybe you were you were charged in error in some place and, and, and you need to get things straightened out and so it's important that you, you lodge some kind of dispute that, that things get straightened out and that, that justice is served and all things are made right or, or, or sometimes it's, it's something really foolish. Just, just yesterday I was driving home with my family after a long day of baseball. We had, we had had three baseball games yesterday. I helped coach my son's team and as we're driving home I was thinking about my sermon today, and I, I asked my family, I said, hey guys, what, what would be some examples you could think of of, of really foolish disputes? And, and they said, well, I, and I have no idea why they said this one, but they, they said, well, how about like if a, a coach argues with an umpire? <laughs> I don't know why they suggested that. I, they get these ideas out of nowhere, I guess. But, but yeah, that would be a foolish dispute. <laughs> Dispute in verse 24 is more of that variety. It is a foolish dispute. A dispute arose among them as to which of them would be regarded as the greatest. As we look at this passage, a couple things come to mind as to why it is so foolish of a dispute for them to have. First of all, there's there's the fact that this isn't the first time they've had this dispute, right? We just read those words together from Luke 9. That's why I chose that to be our unison scripture reading so that we could see one against each other just how foolish it was for them to be having this dispute. We've, we've already covered this territory, Jesus could tell them. And yet, they're walking through it again. And it's made all the more, more foolish, all the more ridiculous that they would have this dispute at this time of all times. Remember where we are in the progress of Luke's gospel. We are literally in the upper room. It is the night that the Lord has, has instituted the Lord's Supper. He is about to be betrayed and turned over to the hands of evil men who will crucify him. He has, he has served them the Lord's Supper. He has washed their feet as a servant to them. They are literally still at the Lord's table. He has told them he was about 
to go to the cross, that he was going to die for them. And their reaction? Well, that's interesting, Jesus, but, but I'm better than him, and he's not as good as me. See how foolish that is? You know, it's sad that, that those kind of things happen. That's the way of the world, though, isn't it? I think about how this is in the context of Jesus about to die. That should have consumed their thoughts. Their focus should have been totally on that. And sometimes I see that at, at funerals that I'll conduct. And it's so sad. But, but somebody will have died and, and I'll meet with the family and, and it becomes quickly apparent in coming to the funeral home or going to the home of the family that, that they're all kind of jockeying for position, right? Because, because they, they certain, certain people want certain possessions to be theirs perhaps or, or because it's about money and they want certain money or they, they, they want to be in a scene in a certain light or, or they have all these self-directed motivations when their, their attention should be on the one who has just passed away. So it was for the disciples. Jesus had not yet passed away, but he was headed in that direction. He was headed to the cross, and they should have been focused on him. He said to them in verse 25 that the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority are, are called benefactors. The kings of the Gentiles, that's, that's the kings of, of the people, the rulers of the people who are not the people of God. He says the people who are, are not the people of God, this is how they act. This is, this is how they roll. This is how they do things. Greatness in the eyes of the world is what they're concerned with. But greatness in God's kingdom is very different. See, here's the sad truth that, that we, too often, even as the people of God, have our ideas of greatness influenced or, or even completely shaped by the ways of the world. And we, we want to build ourselves up. We want to think a lot of ourselves. We want other people to think a lot of ourselves. You know, if, if, if you're ever tempted to think a lot of yourself, perhaps you should consider the words of the Puritan, William Jenkin. I came across this quote this week, and I, I thought it was helpful. Jenkins said, our father was Adam. Our grandfather, dust. And our great-grandfather, nothing. See, that's where we come from. That's, that's where we come from. We, we, we are here only by the word and mercy and power of God creating us. We, we didn't create ourselves. We did nothing to be here. So don't think too highly of ourselves. Proverbs 15 says, The fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Paul put it this way in, in 1 Corinthians 6, 5. He says, I say, Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers. You notice what, what he says settles dispute is, is wisdom, right? So we need 
humility and wisdom. The wisdom of God is given to us in scriptures in Colossians 3. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Does that mark your life? Does it mark my life? That's, that's really what we need to be asking ourselves constantly. Are, are our lives marked by such behaviors? Are, are, are our lives marked with compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience? When, when somebody wrongs me, if I have a complaint against somebody, is my natural reaction to bear with them, to forgive them as Christ Jesus has forgiven me? Or do I want to seek justice? Do I demand justice? They need to make things right right now. I have been shown mercy. I need to be willing to show mercy as well. I need to do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than myself. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 26 when he says that, that, that yeah, the kings of the Gentiles, they do it this way. The world does it this way, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. Jesus, of course, had, had modeled this ideal. He had personified this ideal. This is, this is exactly what he had done on that very night, what he had done his whole life, really, and what he was in the midst of doing even then. For who is the greater, he says, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? That's the way everybody understands that, right? The, the waiter is waiting on the one. But he says, but I am among you as the one who serves. He says, says I am clearly the greatest. I'm the Messiah, the Son of God. And yet I serve you. He's turning the world's way of things on its head. He's, he's flipping it over. He's saying the world does it one way, but, but we're going to do it differently. I do things differently, and if you follow me, you will do things differently. And so we must ask ourselves today, am I more like the disciples, or am I more like Jesus? Am I more like the disciples trying to establish my own greatness? Or am I more like Jesus, serving others in humility, considering others more important than myself? You know, I, I find it helpful that the disciples are so relatable because, because the reality is I, I tend to be more like the disciples. <laughs> And, and perhaps none of them is more relatable than Peter, simply because he messes up so much, so profoundly, and so obviously, and so boldly. And so we see here in this passage today how, how Peter was, was just so ridiculously overconfident. You know, confidence can be okay, but, but overconfidence, not so much. 
Uh, the, the culture that we live in tells us that, that, you know, if you set your mind to it, you can accomplish anything, right? Isn't, isn't that what the world tells us? You know, from, from school days on up, they say if you just, just apply yourself, set your mind to it, you can do anything. But the reality is, isn't it, that, that if I'm standing on one side of a 50-foot wide chasm that's 100 feet deep, and I decide I'm going to jump across that chasm, it really doesn't matter how much I set my mind to it. I will fail, and the results will be horrific. And so it's important not to be overconfident, to have a a right assessment of things, including a right assessment of myself. And, And that's where Peter failed and where we often fail. Jesus issues him a warning here. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Notice this, this What's called a double vocative is the fancy linguistic phrase where he he repeats his name, Simon, Simon. Jesus often does this to to just portray a a sense of earnestness and urgency to what he's saying. A a passion as he's speaking deeply from his heart, Simon, Simon. He tells him Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like Wheat, and it's interesting for us to note, we lose this in the English, but, but in the Greek that this was originally in, it, it, this becomes more clear, but, but the, the you here, when he says this, is a plural you. It's not just a singular you, individual, it's, it's a plural you, it's, it's the second person, plural. And so he's not just saying, Satan demanded to have you, Peter, but he's speaking about, about the disciples as a whole. He's, he's, he's saying, Satan has, has demanded to sift you all. You know, in the South, you, know, you, you say, you for singular and for plural, you say y'all. Right? So that's, that's what Jesus is saying there. Satan, Satan demanded to have y'all. That he might sift y'all like wheat. And here's the reality. Satan's looking to do that to us as well. Every day and every moment. Fortunately, Peter learned this lesson. He helped teach it to us in 1 Peter 5, verse 8. What does he tell us years later? Be sober-minded, Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a warring lion, seeking someone to devour. Martin Luther put it so well in his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. That's foreboding isn't it he he seeks to work us woe and on earth is not his equal that's that's troublesome but here are some words of comfort satan satan's demands are regulated by god <laughs> they're, they're limited he he can only do that which god allows him to do so so though he is fierce and evil and bent on our destruction the reality is he is only able to do what god for his purposes allows 
And furthermore, Satan will ultimately be destroyed by Christ Jesus. He will be defeated. He will be cast away. That's what Luther gets at later in A Mighty Fortress is our God. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing, Christ Jesus. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will undo him. One little word, just one word from Christ Jesus will undo him. It'll fell him. He will be gone. That's why it's so important that Jesus here in verse 32 says to Simon, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. See, because Jesus' word is powerful. And if he has prayed for him, there's power in his prayer like, like we cannot believe. It's always wonderful to have somebody pray for you, but this is Jesus that has prayed for him. <laughs> what wonderful comfort there is in that. And, and it's interesting here now, as, as we look at it, he said, you know, Satan, Satan demanded to have y'all, plural, but here he's saying, but, but Simon, Peter, I have prayed for you individually. By name, I prayed for you, he says. Specifically that your faith might not fail. I used to think he was talking about in, in the trials uh, of his three temptations that, that he had prayed that his faith might not fail. But that's not what it is because Jesus already knows it's going to fail. He, he tells him as much in verse 34 before the rooster will, will, will crow. Uh, you're going to deny me three times. He says this is going to happen. But what he's referring to here is, is that afterwards, I pray that your faith will not fail. Be strengthened. Specifically in verse 32, when you have turned again, after you have sinned, after you have fallen in your sin, after you have failed so miserably, I pray that you will, once you have turned again, once you have repented, once you have looked back to God, that you will strengthen your brothers. There's a certain sense in which when we have fallen, we are uniquely equipped to help those who fall. Through the experience of weakness and brokenness, we can help those who are weak and broken. Leon Morris puts it so well when he says, notice the master did not ask that his servant might be freed from trouble. The undergoing of difficulty and hardship is an integral part of the Christian way. He who has been through deep waters has the experience that enables him to help others. We can strengthen and help others specifically because we have had trials and difficulties and tragedies and even through our own sinful failings. Peter's confident he's not going to fail. He's overconfident. He says, I'm ready, Lord. I'm going to go to, to jail with you. I'll go to the grave with you. I'm not going to fail you at all. Why was he so overconfident? Especially with Jesus having just told him these things. It's because he trusted 
what he felt more than what God's word said, <laughs> right? And, and that's a danger we all slip into sometimes. We need to be aware. Don't ever trust your feelings more than you trust the word of God because that will surely lead you astray. Well, we're, we're far too quick to place confidence in ourselves. So instead, we need to place our confidence in Jesus. Because it's in him, Paul writes in Ephesians 3, that we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. In Hebrews 4, we read, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. Our confidence is in Christ Jesus and what he has done for us. If Peter were to be truly ready, he would have had to have a, a better understanding of things. Turns out he wasn't quite as ready as he thought he was. The nature of readiness, in verse 35, he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. And, and, and perhaps this sounds familiar to you if you've been with us through our study of Luke. Back in Luke 10, there was a passage where, where the Lord appointed 72 people and sent them ahead of him, two by two, at every town where they were supposed to go. He said, the harvest is plentiful. But the, the laborers are few, and he sent them out and told them to go carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and, and greet no one on the road. He said, just, just go. Don't worry about it, and, and, and you will be provided for. But here he says to them, now let the one who has a money bag take it. Likewise, a knapsack, and let the one who has a, no sword sell his cloak and buy one. At first glance, this might seem odd. Why is Jesus saying to do something totally different than than what he has said before, but that's, that's not that odd if you think about it. You, you pack different things depending on where your trip is taking you, don't you? If, if you were to go on a vacation to the Grand Canyon, you might pack one set of things, whereas if you were going to Florida, you might pack something else. If you were taking a trip to Paris, it might be a, a whole different group of things that you are going to pack, different types of clothes, different things to take with you. And so it is here, you see, because on, on the first missionary trip that Jesus was sending the disciples on, it was to the people of Israel. It was amongst the people of God. And, and they were going to go out, and he said, the people of God will care for you. I will see to it. But, but now he says, I'm sending you out into the world. I'm sending you out to the places where there are not people of God. And so you need to be prepared, because... You can't be assured that people will provide for you. But you will go out to them and you need to take this message, this message that I am the Messiah. I am the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. That's what he refers to here in verse 37 about the scriptures must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. What is written about me has its fulfillment. He is numbered with the transgressors, not only in the fact that when he was crucified, he was crucified between two criminals, but he was numbered with the transgressors in that he was counted as sin on our behalf. He who was perfectly holy, he who had done no wrong, he who had walked faithfully with God in every step of his life from, from birth to that point, he had done no wrong. And yet he would be punished for our sins. He would bear the weight of our chastisement, the burden of our 
punishment was on him. And only because of that can we be saved. Only because of that can we be accounted righteous. Only because of that can we have fellowship with God who is holy because Christ has taken our sin. He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. That we might be his beloved. That that we might be made holy before him. And this is the message that the disciples had to take out to the world. This is what he's talking about. But, But they don't understand. They're not ready for that. They said to him, Lord, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. I used to think that this passage, when he said it is enough, he said, oh, okay, two swords, that'll be enough. No, that's not what he's saying here. He's saying... Enough! You guys completely do not get this. It's as if you're having a talk with your child, maybe, and they're, they're just totally not getting what you're saying, and, and, and they're, they're maybe talking back, and, they're, and you just say, enough! You, you are totally missing what I'm saying. And that's what Jesus is saying. They didn't realize that, that being ready wasn't a matter of this, this having swords for a, a physical battle, the battle they were going to be undertaking was a spiritual one. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the, the whole armor of God that you may be with, able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm. The sword that they needed was the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. That's the sword that they needed, but the disciples missed that. The other reason they weren't ready was because of their overconfidence. They didn't know that they were going to fail. That's part of being ready is knowing we're going to fail. We are going to fail. We're going to fall short, but we can't be just totally demoralized by that. Because there's an amazing truth that Jesus loves us even in the midst of our failings. He loves us in spite of it. We didn't need to know that Jesus keeps his grip on us just as we sang before. He will hold me fast. When I fear my faith will fail. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. Realize I could never keep my hold for my love is often cold. But he will hold me fast. We need to realize that. He will hold me fast. It's all about Jesus, not about me. He will hold me fast. We're about to sing another hymn before the throne of God above. It speaks of how we have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Were we making our own plea, our own our own demands to God, we would be lost, but it is Christ Jesus who pleads for us. And so we come to him today worshiping him and we know that we can have confidence only on the basis of this, that we know who Jesus is. We know what he has done. And we know who we are as a result. We are his, his beloved And he will never let us go. To him be all the glory. Amen. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, we we thank you for this fact that, that though our love grows cold, though we 
sin and fail, though we have mixed up ideas about who you are and what you're calling us to accomplish, though we are lacking in 10,000 ways, even 10,000 times 10,000, still you hold us fast. You hold us fast, not as, as those who would hate you, but as those who you love. May we live out that reality to your glory. And may we rest in the assurance that we have in Christ Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.